You can now hear Movie Heaven, Movie Hell on Stitcher. Stitcher is radio on demand. Listen anytime, anywhere. Stitcher is an award-winning free app that lets you listen to all your favorite shows, plus discover from 20,000 news, entertainment, and sports shows. You can also create your own custom playlists. Stitcher is available on iOS, Android, Nook, iPad, and in over 4 million car dashboards. It's on demand and it's on the go. No downloading, no syncing, no wasted memory. You can stream your favorite podcasts from Stitcher. Don't have Stitcher? Download it free today at stitcher.com or in the App Store. And please leave us a review and rating on Stitcher. Thank you. Welcome to Movie Heaven, Movie Hell with me, Simon Aiken, and... And I'm Keith Isles, and we're both independent filmmakers that like to talk about other film directors' work. We are indeed. Before we get on to this week's director, uh, we just got a a little announcement to make. Uh, We're doing a New Year's special, and we need your help. Hey. So the plan is, um, we want you to give us your suggestions for films from the directors we've already talked about. So say with uh, Paul W.S. Anderson, our first uh, director, we only talked about four of his films and we know that they've made, he's made a lot more. So send us your suggestions. And we, me and Keith, we're going to pick our favorite ones and then, um, and then we're going to talk about them. So, you know, uh, and your prize will be the honor of hearing your name on uh, on the podcast. Oh, how can they resist? I, I can hear. I can. We're going to get bombarded. I can see this. So, but no, I mean it is a good opportunity. If if you liked one of the directors we've already talked about, and you think, oh, they picked those films, they suck. I wish they talked about this one. Then now's your opportunity. <laughs> so that's good. So you've got to the end of November to get your suggestions to us. You can uh, send them to us via our Facebook page or by our Twitter page. Uh, don't email it to us. <laughs> <laughs> just just do it that way. And then uh, we'll be recording it on the 17th of December and it will be going out um, on the 31st of December, just in time for New Year's. Wow, New Year's Eve special. Yeah, that'll be good. Be interesting. <laughs> so uh, get those suggestions over to us as soon as possible. And please uh, leave us your name as well so uh, we know who to credit. I'm liking it. I'm liking it that this is now becoming an interactive show. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Ra- rather than a couple of film geeks. <laughs> so <it's... laughs> now a whole lot of film geeks yay yeah well we we like geek geek is the new chic so it's all good (laughs) (laughs) all right back to our episode indeed so i'm going to do a little bit of preamble before we say who the uh director is because um it's it's funny um originally we were going to do a podcast um with clive and rob um about this director and um for their podcast, it was going to be, uh, we were going to look at 
all of the the crime thrillers this director had made and uh the last minute um rob and clyde decided that they wanted to uh move in a different direction with their podcasting and uh it got cancelled and you know not i can't talk for yourself keith but i know that i was disappointed because i was i was looking forward to it i i had done my homework i was prepared <laughs> to do all this and um you know, it was just a shame that it got cancelled, but it was the sort of seed for this podcast. That's Indeed. The reason why we wanted to sort of start this podcast and uh, to do it. So, you know, good things come out of uh, situations like that. So, yeah. And it's fair to say, I mean, you, you know, um, I absolutely understand why Clive and, and Rob decided, you know, not to go ahead and to move in another direction. And any listeners out there should really check out their podcast, which is called the A to Z of SFF, um, which is a science fiction fantasy um, podcast that they do, uh, which has some very interesting stuff on it. So, um, you know, uh, we, we, we do want to mention our friends and, and make sure they get credit as well. <laughs> That's it. And also check out their previous podcast uh, called The Speakeasy. Yes, which we're on, aren't we? We are. <laughs> some indeed. Of them. We, we're on a few of the episodes. There's some some really good ones. Uh, the 2000 AD episode is a, it's a, is a classic, in my opinion. Ah, yes. We need to get Rob Wickings maybe on one of ours. We've had, we've had Clive several times, so maybe yeah. we should get rob involved as well at some juncture when it's appropriate yes In, cool. indeed, indeed. <laughs> excellent right so keith who is this director oh who is this mystery director that we've built up now well i have to say um one of my uh one of my favorite directors uh although another one that hasn't actually directed that many films considering he's been directing since the 70s right up to he had a film out this year. He's only he's only actually got nineteen directing credits, and that is Michael Mann. That's correct. And out of those nineteen, uh, I believe that uh, uh, I think it's like fourteen are actually films, and the rest is TV. Absolutely, yes. He did yeah. start off with some episodic uh, television work, and um, you, you, you know, uh, a very. The thing I particularly like about Michael Mann is he's a very uh, detail orientated director. Um, he's, you know, he's a real stickler, uh, a little bit like, you know, we were saying about the reason there's a lot of gaps between Kubrick's work when we talked about him. Very similar in terms of research, um, less le less varied in terms of types of film, I think. Uh, I yeah. mean, there is a a biopic in there and a period piece and some dramas, but a lot of it is, is based around sort of crime drama, thriller type work. Well, this is down to the fact that um, he had a lot of contacts in that world. I mean, uh, he had family that was in police enforcement. Uh, also some of the actors he worked with. Um, is it uh, Dennis Farano? Yes. Yeah. Is Dennis it, Farina. Was a cop? Yeah. Farina, sorry. Yeah. Dennis Farino was a cop. So, you know, he has a lot of ties with that, that world. Yes, no, absolutely. Um, very much so, you, you know, a, a man that does put a lot of research into every project before he uh, before he undertakes it. Um, also, uh, you, you know, does a lot of his own screenplays. Uh, he did actually start off as a writer um, in episodic television. He, he actually wrote some early episodes of Startsky and Hutch, I believe, is, is kind of where he started off. Um, 
the sort of first forte into that sort of uh, police procedural crime, um, you know, action uh, arena. Um, and, you, you know, quite a lot of the, the movies that he's done, whether they've been adaptations or original pieces of work, are actually, um, you know, penned by him in terms of, of the screenplay at the very least. Did you know that he did his film training here in London? Yes, apparently he did. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, it's not not apparent. It, it it's it's fact. Um, I worked uh, a few times for the London Film School. Right. Well, I was so known as the London International Film School in Covent Garden, and uh, he is one of their alumni. Ah. Uh, he had at that point back in the late nineties, he was still had ties to the school. If that's the case now, I don't know, but uh, they certainly. Um, they certainly put him up front and centre um, whenever I was working at the school. I, I used to do running jobs for student shoots and stuff. So, right. Um, I, I worked for him a couple of times. And, yeah, he's uh, he's an alumni. He learnt, um, learnt his craft here in London and uh, and then went back to the States to, uh, to sort of put it to use over there. Wow. Okay. Well, I mean, uh, you, you know, he, he certainly is an interesting guy and, and there is uh, – there is you know, interviews and various works of his uh, available to, to buy. And uh, I, again, I encourage anyone that's listening to this that's perhaps interested in filmmaking. Um, again, you could do a lot worse than, uh, than, 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 you know, read some or listen to some of Michael Mann's thoughts on it. I mean, it's, it's fair to say he's, he's not a big guy on laughs. I mean, all of his work is, is serious to, uh, to, to, you know a ridiculous degree in some in some cases i mean um you, you know he does take not only the craft seriously but the subject matters that he works in very seriously and in all of his films are said are intricately detailed but are also um quite serious so uh, any anyone that wants to see a romantic comedy or something like that michael mann is not the man <laughs> <laughs> No, his uh, his subjects are very serious, and they are always dealt in a very serious manner. But I mean, I so but they're they're very. Um, I always find that once you start watching them, they're very hard to turn off. Oh, big time! Absolutely, absolutely. Well, I mean, you, you know, even though this is movie heaven, movie hell, um, you, you know, I know we'll get into this later, but I, I find it hard to pick any of his work that I don't actually like um you, you know most of it's pretty engaging but uh yeah yeah you say that but i i think uh of late he has been pretty lackluster i have to say um the last three films he made uh haven't been great yeah no i i, I know what you mean they they haven't got the um hopefully hopefully he's not on one of these declines that we've talked about with a few other directors but um you, you know certainly uh yeah, the, the the last couple of instalments, although interesting, um, maybe haven't quite been up there. I mean, it's fair to say the work that we we picked for this are more from his sort of the middle of his career, aren't they? So um, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, it certainly was um, it was finding his stride. Yeah. You know. I mean, I you know this is this was one of those guys, another one like many that we've talked about that um, uh, was very much a part of my you know growing up um and very much one of one of the directors that got me interested uh in 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 the in the filmmaking craft and and wanting to tell stories and things of that nature because i really liked the types of films that he made um 
and uh, yeah, yeah, been watching them, you know, right the way through. Um, oh, I wouldn't say that was the same for me. I, I uh, I've had brushes with him when I was a kid, and um, I was never sort of a, a big fan. It wasn't until uh, the mid '90s where I really got into to Michael Mann. I think I was that age where it really sort of resonated with me. But I think up to mid '90s. Um, I wasn't that kind of interested in his work. And um, I remember Manhunter used to be advertised all the time on, uh, you know, Fox video. Mm -hmm. They always had part of their, you know, uh, promo trailer they would have at the beginning of VHSs. There's always the bit with, uh, uh, it's your moose sport, Mm -hmm. you know. And it it never really, you know, interested me um, at that point. But, going back and visiting it as an adult uh, i find it riveting so yeah i think it's um you know sometimes i mean the comparison to kubrick in the sense that as a child or a young person you know his films are a bit uninteresting i mean there's some good stuff in it um when i was growing up but nothing that would sort of keep me interested or coming back but as an adult as i say find it absolutely riveting and i love going back and watching his films uh even some of these bad ones yeah yeah no absolutely and apparently apparently it was you know back to that old Kubrick connection which we always seem to have in a lot of these podcasts but apparently it was um it was uh Kubrick's you know Dr Strange love that actually kind of made Michael Mann fall in love with movies and and pursue that as as his career um which is quite interesting uh, well, at least according to to uh, Wikipedia, which uh, <laughs> you know whether or not that's true, I don't know, but it says it on there. So you know, we've never known the internet to get things wrong. Oh no, never, never. It's always completely one hundred percent factual on everything. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I often though for film source stuff, uh, it's it's usually quite good, you know, because there mm. is a lot of documented stuff out there nowadays. So. Yeah, and Michael Mann uh, is also another one that does like to, for filmmakers, uh, he is quite into doing commentaries on most of his films. And, um, you know, again, very serious commentaries, I might add. Um, But, you know, and he's (laughs) quite happy to do interviews and things of that nature. So, uh, again, um, you know, if you want to find out more about him, there is a oodles of information out there i'm, I'm pleased to say right. well let's uh move on to our first pick so uh keith yeah what is your pick for movie well movie? you've already mentioned it um when i was doing my manathon <laughs> for, for the <laughs> for the podcast that we were originally going to do i um i kind of went with again something that sort of was was always around for me and that was uh indeed manhunter um this is one of those films like we've said on other podcasts that I, I dread to think the amount of times I've owned this. Um, I had it on a, you know, on a, I originally saw it on VHS um, in that era. Um, I I owned it on VHS at one point. Um, I've had several different versions of it on DVD, and I'm pleased to say I also have a Blu-ray of it. So it, it's it's one of those that I've that I've dipped into quite a few times. Um, uh, this was, of course, made in 1986, and it was the kind of well, really, the first film um, to adapt any of the Thomas Harris novels, um, i.e. the Hannibal Lecter series, which uh, which is obviously massive nowadays. Um, but this this was the one that did it first. This actually did it uh, before Silence of the Lambs, although I think my 
my coming to discover this film and see this film was off the back of Silence of the Lambs. So in other words, I saw Silence of the Lambs, really loved that film, uh, really liked the whole Hannibal Lecter thing, was quite creeped out about it all. And, um, you know, I think somebody said to me, oh, you know, there's a prequel story to this that Michael Mann did. I was like, really? Okay, wow. You know, I knew Michael Mann, obviously, through Miami Vice and things of that nature um, and, and checked it out. And uh, it is it is a, um, well, I, I love it, obviously, hence why I've owned it so many times. Um, it's it, it was produced by Dino De Laurentiis' company. Um, the reason it's called Manhunter is... It was originally shot under its title, Red Dragon, the same as the novel um, and the remake that came. Um, uh, but uh, De Laurentiis at the time felt that it sounded a little bit too much like a, a, a martial arts movie. And um, th apparently there'd been some like box office flops around that time. So they decided to change it to Manhunter. I don't think Michael Mann had anything to do with that, although quite interesting, Manhunter. There you go. They should have done it with a double N. <laughs> uh, but uh, yes. Well, can I, I just want to say on this point, I think the um, the title actually suits the film because it is from um, Will Graham's point of view. Very much. For most of it. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. For preparation for watching this, I went I went and watched Red Dragon, yep. the remake the, the the one they made so they could put um anthony hopkins in the role and i have to say um of course straight off the bat i prefer manhunter it's, it's massively two different films red dragon is just it's not very it's not done very well i know there's people who like it and some people who prefer it over manhunter but um it's it's not a very good film but with red dragon it was there was a lot more of um of the this the serial killer in there um trying to think what his uh francis dollarhide the tooth fairy which uh yeah was played by ray fines in in the in the remake in the brett ratner film in manhunter uh the, the tooth fairy is very much somebody who you know he has a purpose and he doesn't sort of waver but yet in the red, in red dragon he has this whole thing where you know he he has a sort of whole mother complex and it red dragon's everything's sort of spelt out for you massively mm -hmm. you know there's there should be like big signs everywhere going ding 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 yeah yeah no no i i understand what you mean i mean you, you know basically red dragon um was made to sort of complete the the, the, the Hannibal Lecter trilogy, if you like, with with Anthony Hopkins in, even though, you know, it was like sort of made 12 years after Silence of the Lambs and was supposed to take place like uh, 10 years beforehand. So, and this was before they could sort of make people look younger with CG and whatever. So Anthony Hopkins wow. is clearly older, but... Um... <laughs> it was kind of comical. So how do we make him younger? We give him a ponytail. <laughs> Yes, exactly. Um, I have to say, actually, while, whilst we're on the subject, though, before we get into Manhunter itself, um, I actually don't mind um, the, the, the Red Dragon film. Uh, I think it's, you know, you know, one of the strongest things about that is the screenplay itself, who was, which was done by the same guy that did Silence of the Lambs. It was quite a good, good screenplay. Uh, but the casting of it was 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 quite strong i feel i mean it's got it's got quite a um you know a number of really obviously bankable but also 
quite good actors in it. And uh, obviously, they, you know, they were trying to sort of tie this into the uh, to, to, to the Silence of the Lambs and the, the Hannibal continuity, um, you, know, you know, which they didn't do too bad a job of. Having said that, it's a completely different style altogether um, to Manhunter. Well, you know what made me laugh was the fact that uh, both films, Manhunter and Red Dragon, have the same cinematographer. It's Dante Spinetti. That's right. Yeah, exactly. And they look completely different. Yeah. I mean, Manhunter looks amazing and Red Dragon looked all right. Yeah, I mean, Red Dragon was kind of done to be sort of, again, to look a little bit like the world they'd set up that, that um, Jonathan Demme and Ridley Scott had set up in, in, in the sequel movies. And, and Yeah, but I mean, the, you know. the thing for me was that um, the use of shots because um, they they were a lot more they were a lot more closer in Red Dragon, mm-hmm. but they they just sort of used that all the time. While the shots in Manhunter they they are picked from a psychological point. Oh, of view. totally. So you know from from the start, you know you see his back to us. Yeah, you don't see him facing forward. So and it's just the way he's positioned in the frame just tells us so much more than than dialogue would do. Yet in in Red Dragon, a lot of it is just dialogue, and it's you it, it's like you know that kind of dialogue when they say something and you go, "What really? I did not know mm-hmm. that." It's like you know playing to the um, what's the phrase to the masses to the... kind of thing, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's yeah. Kind of... But there's an, there's another phase about playing to the back of the house or something oh right like that, yeah it? yeah 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 playing yeah. to the yeah exactly back of that audience sort of thing but... or playing to the bleachers yeah. or, or something like yeah that. yeah but yeah it was it was very sort of on the nose playing to the cheap seats let's say that <laughs> yeah. That's it, but yeah. yeah no i know that's not the yeah. actual saying but no no exactly it was a bit it was it was much less um it was it was a much less stylized adaptation of of, of the story um you, you, you know as i said i'm a fan of the franchise so i like it kind of for that reason, um, you know, more, if you like, than, than, than but in, in terms of Michael Mann's one, I mean, as, as I've mentioned on other podcasts, uh, a couple of years back, I used to um, teach media and film production. And um, one of the classes that, that used to be on the syllabus was to talk up to um, students, there's a lot of theory stuff. And, you know, we used to talk about mise-en-scene. And um, okay. I actually would use Manhunter as, as a prime example of that. Can I just ask you, um, uh, this is for me and everybody who quite don't quite understand what mise-en-scene means. What does mise-en-scene mean? Okay, it's, it's basically, obviously, it's, it's, you know, from the sort of French New Wave um, history sort of thing, hence, hence the name. But it, it, it's about everything that's, that's within the frame serving the story and character. So it's, so it's about everything from from the actual composition of the framing to the colors and the textures used to what they're wearing to to how everything sets up in fact you've already mentioned a a, a great example of it you, you can tell a lot about the character's relationship of will graham and um uh jack crawford his boss played by dennis farina in this film um simply from that shot where they're they're sat and they're not you know they're not facing one another they're sat opposite each other on that tree stump on the beach and and just things like that it, it gives the audience it's like using the the the, the visuals um to, to 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 help tell the story and 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 have if you like even deeper context i mean there, there are there are essays and lectures galore on this sort of thing out there 
I, and, and another thing as well. I'm, I'm sorry to pick That's on right. a dragon, but I'm going to pick on you. Fine. <laughs> um, the beginning of Red Dragon, we get to see Will Graham discovering who Hannibal Lecter is. Yes. And you know him being attacked yes and i felt that was just put in there because they they wanted to show that oh it totally it was, like, was yeah it totally yeah was. but i mean but the thing was with manhunter when you see that first scene you you know straight away there's a history between these two people yeah you know and you know that this that will graham has left and that he he wants to move on yet jack crawford won't let him yeah no absolutely and, yeah and, but the thing is though when you see the same scene in Red Dragon, it's just so it it just does not have the same effect. It's not as interesting either. No, no, I, I, absolutely. I mean, I I don't think if I had to pick one, um, you know, Manhunter is my favourite. The only the, the the thing I like about Red Dragon is is well, the story's good, obviously, but I like the fact that you know I like my continuity, and I like the fact that they've tried to sort of put it within the 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 universes, the 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 Thomas Harris universe continuity. Um, even though, interestingly, in the uh, in Silence of the Lambs, um, you get Scott Glenn playing Jack Crawford, and I guess for whatever reason he didn't come back uh, uh, to reprise the role for um, for Red Dragon. So they actually cast Harvey Keitel, who I always think, interestingly, is more like the Dennis Farina version of Jack Crawford from this film. So <laughs> it's kind of like, <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. Can I ask you? Um as we're comparing uh, and picking, uh, which uh, performance of Dr. Hannibal Lecter do you prefer? Oh, God. Well, you know, I mean, that's, that's, that's difficult, obviously, with, um, you know, Anthony Hopkins, you know, you know, being the Oscar winner for this and kind of having uh, sort of, I guess, defined the character in sort of popular culture and whatever. But obviously he wasn't the first to play it. You know, Brian Cox played Hannibal Lecter in, in, in Manhunter. Um, yeah, you know, it was a mu- it was a different performance. It was a much, it was a much less performed performance, if that makes sense. It was it was very it was subtle. It was quite matter of fact. Uh, obviously, the setting couldn't have been more different as well because Michael Mann chose to go with the you know completely clinical uh, white aesthetic with the white jumpsuit and the completely white cell whereas obviously when they got onto silence of the lambs they they they, they tried to do something a little bit more um creepy and and horrific if you like uh you know with that but yeah i mean it's it's very different it's hard to compare them um you know it would have been i think it would have been interesting had silence of the lambs actually been made as a sequel to this and whether you know brian cox who you know, has since been in absolutely everything. But you know, if at the time he'd he'd, he'd reprise the role, I don't know. But but you know, I I can't help but love Hopkins um, as well. You know. Well, yeah. I mean, I I enjoy um, Hopkins as Hannibal Lecter. I mean, he certainly did make it his own. But I also like the Brian Cox version as well. Yeah. I think it's much better. But when comparing the two films, um, Hannibal Lecter, well. Anthony Hopkins or Brian Cox in the two different versions of Red Dragon, uh, I actually go with Brian Cox over him because it's a bit more, I don't know, a bit more hammy. I mean, it was a lot more. I think the nice thing they did with Manhunter was not to have him so much in it. 
yet with Red Dragon, it was kind of like, well, how can we get Hannibal Lecter back into this story? Yeah, yeah. Oh, it was big time that. I mean, you, you know, yeah. his scene was, or his, his involvement was very much expanded for that. I mean, um, you, you know, whilst whilst we're talking about the, the franchise, if you like, um, as mm-hmm. you know, you know, I, I love my television shows as well. And of course, it, it, it's just finished now. But um, I was quite uh, intrigued and interested in the in the television adaptation of Hannibal, uh, which is completely reimagined with um, Mads Mikkelsen playing, um, you know, the Hannibal Lecter role. And, uh, you know, Brian Fuller had made this a very, uh, you you know, it was a very, um, if you like, grotesquely beautiful show, (laughs) meaning it, it, it was it was very it'd gone very high on sort of visual metaphor and, and production design and, and you know, uh, clothing and, and all of this sort of thing. But they, they've they actually just finished doing an ad- another adaptation of Red Dragon um, that they oh, finished, right. because, because which, which they sort of borrowed. I mean, they, they reimagined it. They changed the fates of some of the characters and stuff from the original uh, novel text material. But they had plenty of homages to, you know, all of the film franchises, including Hannibal Rising, even in there, um, and you know, it's a shame because the Brian Fuller's original plan for this was to have sort of a seven-season run. So you had like uh, three seasons that, that that took place prior to the events of Red Dragon. Okay, so with with Hannibal and Will Graham meeting and and sort of establishing the characters and the relationship. Then a season that was supposed to be an adaptation of Red Dragon, then a season that was going to be um, uh, an adaptation of Silence of the Lambs, and then a season that was going to be uh, a, a reimagining of, of Hannibal itself, the film, and then a final season to tie it all up. And I guess, you know, it was it was clearly quite an expensive show. And what ended up happening was, you know, it got cancelled. Um, in season three but they kind of knew that so what they did is they had a a time jump and went into the red dragon and covered that into in sort of a episode arc Um, and they've kind of you know I think they're trying to see if if Netflix or something will pick it up to or a movie or whatever but um, it's interesting I hope so I mean I I really I really enjoyed the show I mean I haven't caught parts two and three yet right uh but i'm i will at some point but i i really enjoyed the first season and uh the one thing i i really liked about the first season was uh, um because hannibal lecter was very much part of the team in some sense mm-hmm. that they would always come uh will graham would always go to him for advice and stuff and uh he would always have the team round for dinner yes and of course usually he was serving up somebody <laughs> Uh, and so I was waiting for that moment where they all realised what they'd been eating yeah. over those weeks and months. Yes, it was wonderfully dark. <laughs> I couldn't actually believe that it was on network television because that it was it was very much like a cable show. They even used you know like a cable model in terms of uh, twelve episode um, seasons and stuff. But uh, they they really did push it uh, to its limit. I think in terms of um, you know gore and. Uh, um, but yes, they at the same time, 
you know, they had some mouth-watering dishes, which, like you said, if wonderfully dark in terms of most of the time they were victims <laughs> that he yeah. was serving up on a platter. But anyway, I guess I should get back to Michael Mann. But I thought while we were talking about Thomas Harris and, and the Hannibal Lecter. Yeah, I mean, it's what well, it, you can't not talk about Manhunter and the Hannibal Lecter series of films and the TV series because they're all part of the same universe even though we have different people playing Hannibal Lecter but he is the linchpin of of these stories exactly and and I just would say I've I've not seen Hannibal Risings and uh, I had a chance to this week and I decided not to because I just heard such bad things about it and I thought you know there's better uses of my time it's a prequel you know that uh, Thomas Harris put out and they made the film of pretty pretty swiftly after that and uh yeah i mean it, it gives you some backstory but overall it's yeah it doesn't really add much um hence why most people think of it as the trilogy rather than the quadrilogy or whatever <laughs> so but um but yeah i mean you know manhunter is a film in its own right um you know it's 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 not trying to be part of that franchise um Michael Mann has definitely put his stamp on this. I mean, stylistically, um, you know, his use of colours, his use of framing. I mean, Michael Mann very much likes the 235 to 1 aspect ratio, which he uses on pretty much all his films. Um, You you know, he's used it here. Um, His use of of music and and, um, soundtrack in this, uh, again, you, you know, uh, he'd already done he'd already experimented with this sort of thing back in you know the Miami Vice days which were just prior to this Miami Vice TV series that is not movie um and uh y- y- you know he uses that very well he uses popular music during uh you know uh graphic scenes and action scenes and and things of that nature and, and you know again some great before I mean Will Will Graham who's a, a William Peterson of, of now CSI fame. Um, but, you, you know, uh, back then when he was, he was young, um, uh, you, you know, a, a decent lead character performance there, I feel. Decent. I thought he's great. I mean, he's, I mean, the thing is, he's, he's, he's so focused, but I mean, the other thing as well is that you can see him being drawn into it. And it's all, again, it's, it's all subtlety. It's, it's not these big speeches they're not you can see him slowly being drawn back into this and and the thing is you know he's he's a character who you know he has empathy for serial killers he can think like they can think but it also means that he's very close to that edge that he could go over that line and become a serial killer himself but he doesn't and the reason why he doesn't is because he holds life in such high regard hence why he hunts these guys no absolutely and it is a great performance and apparently you know very much pushed for by michael mann because the 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 studios at the time wanted you know somebody more bankable like uh, i think richard gear mel gibson and paul newman were all sort of names that were batting around but um, man cast him after seeing To Live and Die in L.A. and, um, you know, really liked his performance in that. And, uh, you, you know, cast cast the right guy, I think, for this, you know. You, you know, and, and obviously Tom Noonan in this plays uh, Francis Dollarhide stroke the Tooth Fairy in this version. Um, you know, 
Noonan's good at uh, playing creepy roles anyway because <laughs> of his, you know, um, his demeanour and his size and whatever. Um, apparently, though, there were some reshoots that were done on this. Originally, as lots of the marketing material had, um, they had as in the, the remake and, of course, the novels, um, you know, the, the whole tattoo thing going on for the... Uh, but... Um, uh, Michael Mann changed his mind about that, and they actually went back and sort of refilmed uh, those scenes, you know, the shirtless scenes, oh, without right. the yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, without the tattoo. Which I think is is a good choice. I don't think it worked uh, in Red Dragon. I mean, it was it was actually kind of funny, which um, I don't think would have worked because uh, Tom Noonan's character was so, you know, he's so scary anyway. You could believe it. I mean, this is the problem I had with Red Dragon again. Is just that you know, um, you know, Ray Fiennes playing. You know, as 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 much as he's a good character actor, I don't think he was the same as Tom Noonan. I think Tom Noonan's performance was so more believable. You could, you know, he was a scary guy, while Ray's performance was. You're feeling a bit of empathy for him, but when he when take the scene where they have the Freddie Lowndes character, you so you have the the scene with you know Tom Noonan and Stephen Lang, absolutely tense as anything. You take the same scene with Philip Seymour Hoffman and um, and Ray Fiennes. It was comical. It was it, you know. It was like Philip Seymour Hoffman was scared of a naked guy. Yeah, yeah. I, I must admit, I think you know. Um, I, I thought it was. I always thought it was an unusual choice to have Ray Fiennes play that role. Uh, not, not that there's anything wrong whatsoever with Ray Fiennes acting. You know, he's he's a superb actor. It's more the fact that I wasn't sure that physically he looked right for the character because, like you said, he he looks more of a normal guy, uh, not so much of a guy that would have been. You, you know, you know this sort of tortured character that that Dollarhide is. So, um, yeah, I mean, I mean, they they kind of followed that model more in the TV show as well. They've gone with the the tattoo, um, although you know it's it's more of a moving metaphor as well in in the TV show, and it's played by Richard Armitage, who's more of a sort of, I guess, Ray Fiennes type. Um, but uh, yeah, interesting. I mean, obviously the source material, of course, had the tattoos in in the books and things of that nature. But um, but I I, uh, I I didn't think there was anything wrong with, with with the way they did it in Manhunter. In fact, I thought it, it actually worked quite well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you 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 had enough of that um, imagery anyway. I mean, when he does the slideshow, I think that that works so well. And you just you you know he is a, a character who's becoming. You know something. You know it's like he's a caterpillar turning into a, a butterfly, and so you know you didn't need. I don't think the tattoo helps at all. I'm sure as people will say, oh, but it was in the book. Yeah, yeah well, you know, as we've we learned over these podcasts, that sometimes what works in a book doesn't work in a film. Exactly, different mediums. Uh, but yeah, I mean, again, with this one, Michael Mann actually did the screenplay uh you know based on harris's novel but um yeah. you, you know there, there there were um some changes uh but yeah i i you know I, I just think the film um you know is visually stunning i like the story um 
And, you know, I just like the way, again, he's taken a really serious approach to this. Um, you know, he's gone well overboard on details. Um, you, you know, it's quite at the same time, it's quite minimalist as well. Like, um, you, you know, the, 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 the Hannibal Lecter cell scene is, is, you know, they're like chalk and cheese if you watch, you know, that and the, the Hopkins version. And, um, you know, I'm not saying either is right or wrong. I just think that, uh, you know, Michael Mann made some interesting choices. And, um, you know, I, th I think it's a, a beautifully photographed film uh, with a great soundtrack and, um, and, and, you know, some decent performances. So if for me, it was an easy one. You know, Michael Mann's uh, filmography, it, there's, there's a lot in there that I like and a lot of contenders for movie heaven. Um, but, yeah, I, uh, I felt that this one um, was, was, was the one for me to choose. And uh, if anybody hasn't seen it, I, I recommend it highly. <laughs> did you notice the the one actor who's been in all four of these films oh what the guy that plays barney in the frankie Faison, that's it, yeah. frank Faison. yeah he... he turns up as a, a a lieutenant at the end that's right yeah and it was like oh my god it's barney yes yeah <laughs> no it, it, it's great that um that uh you, you know for him as an actor that he's been able to be in all of them if you like but uh yeah. um yeah yeah i mean it's uh you know, the attention to detail of this film, I mean, it obviously, yes, it's dated because it's clearly set when it was set. And, uh, you know, a lot of it is to do with profiling and, um, you, you know, they're running around with fax machines and <laughs> you know, stuff like that. But um, still, though, that know, is part of the tension. It is. I, I, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, you know, those little things, I, don't, I think it's I think it's aged very well. Yeah. I don't think I mean. I think another film of his that we're going to talk about has aged really badly, mm -hmm. <laughs> but uh, um, not. I don't think Manhunter. I mean, Manhunter really works, and uh, you know, it's a it's a great film. Yeah. Well, as I said, it's one of those that's always in my collection, whichever medium it, it's on, and uh, you know, it's one of those as well that uh, I think I've said this before, but you know, there are certain films that if they happen to be on television and, and I'm channel flicking or whatever, and, uh, it's on, I watch it even though I own it. It's just, it's just one of those films that I can't help, but uh, that sit and watch and, and I'm fairly gripped by. So, um, so yes, uh, you know, I, 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 I really could go on about this for ages, but uh, you know, bottom, bottom line is I think it's great. <laughs> and Michael Mann did a fantastic job. So yeah, good on him. He did, and uh, I think uh, would have been one would have been my pick if you hadn't got there first. Aha! Okay, fair enough. <laughs> but uh, I equally like my pick. Um, so uh, it's another crime thriller uh, from '95, and it's the film Collateral. That's two thousand two thousand and four. Collateral, oh, sorry. Right? Yeah. Sorry, 2004. I've yeah. been corrected. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you'd only listen to this back when you later in day be, damn, I got that wrong. Like we all do sometimes, you know what I mean? So, <laughs> yes. I know, but I could actually go back and re-record it if I Oh, want. you could. You could. But you don't do that, do you, Simon? <laughs> no, I never do that. We get all our facts are, are right or wrong kept in. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> often, often embarrassingly wrong sometimes, but there you go. <laughs> anyway, so 
back in 2004, um, I'd been, you know, I'd been making films for a while and um, I, I'd been using a lot of like, digital cameras in my work and um and at this point they hadn't really been used in feature films there, there had been like the odd one but i think at this point we had 28 days later we had um there was a, a film called hotel uh that came from um from, uh, mike figures and he was very much into his sort of digital cameras. He did like a, another one that was like, um, oh, time code, yeah, time code. Thank you very yeah. much. Yeah, yeah. And so, digital was kind of creeping in, and this was a film that uh, actually, you know, embraced digital technology and used it really well. the The film takes place in one night in LA. And um, straight away, you are introduced to uh, Tom Cruise, who plays Vincent. And the thing about Michael Mann films is that he likes characters called Vincent. Uh, the name has popped up a few times now. And Vincent's in his films, they're always sharks. They're always dressed in grey. They're always in smart suits. You know, they're professionals. These are people you don't fuck with. They're killers. And just from that brief uh, intro at the airport where Tom Cruise bumps into um, uh, Jason Statham. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Is it the character from the transporter? That's the question. <laughs> <laughs> People do say that. They say, yeah, he's it's the transport. Could be. It could be just a weird choice of actors. You know? <laughs> but uh, it's, it's quite fun little cameo at the beginning. Nice job for Statham. Absolutely. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. And uh, and then we're introduced to Max, who is at the end of the day, he is the heart of the picture. He's the he's the person that we relate to the most because he's been thrown into this situation with this, you know, um, I wouldn't say he's a psychopath, but he's a sociopath. You know, he's somebody who doesn't see what's wrong with what he's doing. You know, he's going around killing people and, you know, and he's making money out of it. And, you know, what's wrong with that? Yeah, no, absolutely. We're, we're introduced to a side of LA we don't normally see. And they're just the use of locations in this film is really well done. I mean, uh, especially when we get into the nighttime photography, you know, driving past uh, LAX and seeing the planes landing and uh, just sort of the, the cityscapes themselves. I mean, the city is a character in the film. And so if you don't know the story, the story is that um, Max picks up Vincent and um Vincent convinces him to stay with him and do go to all these drops and it turns out that Vincent is a hitman and he's knocking these people off and the the nice thing is that Jamie Foxx does everything in his power to stop him you know he's not a willing participant when he because he he learns quite quickly what's going on and he has a problem with it and of course the threat is that Vincent will kill him and, you know, get somebody else to do it because he, he kills very easily. But the great thing about this film is that you get to know Max and Vincent very well. I mean, these, these are two characters you get to know really well because a lot of the time is spent in that cab. And 
you, their relationship and their sort of worldviews and because um max is, is is kind of a dreamer he's you know he's driving a cab but he has bigger plans but yet he's still driving a cab yeah <laughs> he says he says to vincent oh this job's only part-time and uh vincent says 12 years seems to be a, a long time for it to be part-time <laughs> yeah no, absolutely um yeah, yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. This, this is, you know, for the most part of the film. I mean, yes, there's there's some action sequences and whatever, but yeah, you're right. A lot of it is is literally two people in a car um, talking, uh, but absolutely engaging. I mean, you know, Jamie Foxx is is, is a fantastic actor, um, and I have to say, you know, Tom Cruise. Th- this to me is one of his strongest performances. I, I think, you know. His portrayal of Vincent in this is 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 really really nicely measured. You know, it's a measured performance and uh, works really well. I don't mind Tom Cruise. I mean, there's people who don't like him, but um, I quite like him. Um, but um, yeah, I think um, he, he does a really good job because he is playing against type. Because you know, Tom Cruise is usually you know all smiles and you know, look at me, I'm handsome and. Yeah, um, sort of the center of attention and stuff like that. In this, where he's actually trying to not be noticed at all. Yeah, I mean, he's not. You know, you know, you're right. I mean, a lot of people rag on him, and I think it is because of that. You know, often he'll make films that are essentially, you know, Tom Cruise wank fests. As I've heard them, uh, you know, where 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 you know he's, he's he's surrounded by you know girls half his age, and he's you know smiling and perfect and all this sort of thing but you know we, we know he's a good actor from some of the roles earlier in his career and um you, you know i think when he's with a serious director and, and a decent script um you, you know and he, he is clearly a you know very professional guy uh who puts you know his all into into a, a project and uh yeah i mean you know i think this stands out as cer- certainly it, it you know his career sort of post 2000 this is this is one of one of the strongest performances i mean don't get me wrong i love the mission impossible uh franchise but that's you know for whole other reasons but um yeah i mean know. i enjoyed uh jack reacher i mean I'm, I I'm a fan i'm a fan of the book and you know i've read loads of them and of course the description of, of jack reacher in the books and tom cruise Pole opposites, yeah. <laughs> but Tom Cruise pulls it off. He does. I agree. I think so as well. I think that's a decent film. But I mean, this period he was working with some really interesting directors. I mean, he worked with um Paul Thomas Anderson on Magnolia. He'd done Minority Report with Steven Spielberg. And of course he had done Eyes Wide Shot with uh, Stanley Kubrick before this film. So, you know, he'd been working with a lot of really good directors and, you know, sort of I think in some way putting his ego at the back of the of the room and you know being sort of putty in the hands of these directors because those films he's really good in them. Yeah, I mean it's not the as as you put it the cruise wank <laughs> type of films, but they you know that's but those are the I think are the the, the bread and butter yeah. films. No, exactly. I mean you know I, I didn't mean if that's sort of an unfair comment. I didn't. Mean, I actually really like Tom Cruise's work. Yeah, so. I, I, I know people who say that as well. There's a lot of people, and also his sort of his actions in the real world are, are very questionable. And you know, I mean that whole um, Oprah Winfrey incident. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, jumping up and down on the couch saying how much he loved. Uh, 
old what's her name katie holmes yeah 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 we know how that all turned out yeah well you know let's let's not go there eh? (laughs) no but but i mean i think but they they do color how people perceive him in his roles i think so but he's definitely a career professional who puts um you know a lot into the films that he produces uh whether he's acting in them or, or or not and uh yeah i think he's 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 great in this and and yeah you can tell he's he 100 percent trusts michael mann as the filmmaker um i mean that that's the thing you know we've talked on other podcasts about acting um and and you know this this is one of the, the points i always keep meaning to make with um with acting in 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 film um obviously actors bring a lot to everything uh but but of course there's only so much you can do at the end of the day um you know, there's so much out of your control, um, you know, in in the filmmaker's hands that you have to be in a in a pair of hands that you trust, really. And, um, you know, clearly with, you know, to bring it back to Michael Mann, um, you know, with some of Tom Cruise's choices in his career, uh, we can see that, you know, he certainly does, um, you know, make good choices with what directors to work with. Oh, indeed. I mean, I think one of the things that Michael Mann does, which I, you know, in some ways kind of envious of because I never have the time to do it, but he does a lot of rehearsal and he he likes to train the actors. So if you've, I own Collateral and Blu-ray and there's a whole lot of making of stuff on there. And uh, with, with Tom Cruise, they, you know, they sent him to gun training they got him to fire all kinds of weapons because they they wanted him to be you know just matter of fact with 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 the guns and shooting it's you know this is an everyday thing for him it's it's nothing out the blue it's not some big moment i mean he you know he's in the film vincent is a very good marksman i mean he always does a double tap in the chest and one in the head and that's sort of his signature and the the scene where um max is tied up in the uh, the cab he's got his hands tied to the steering wheel and he's calling for help and of course these douchebags come over and try and rob him and uh vincent comes along and he goes hey bro you got my uh, my my case and of course the guy sticks a gun in his face and he shoots him straight away he's such a quick draw but you know the 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 way he shoots the last guy he doesn't even look at him he just you know puts one his head and walks away and it's just you know it was cold just absolutely cold the way he sort of did the killing also uh, another thing he did was uh michael mann got him to deliver a, a fedex parcel didn't they yes yeah that's right <laughs> and so he had to do this and try not draw attention to himself <laughs> you know because it's tom cruise <laughs> yes i thought that was quite funny but yeah seeing um there's a, there's a nice piece on the Blu-ray where you see Michael Mann rehearsing with Tom Cruise, Jamie Foxx, and Jada Pinkett, and you just you can see them sort of getting the performances there, and it's it's you know it's quite nice. And they he would do like a room reading, and then he'd get them into like a cat into a car and do it there, and all that kind of stuff. And it, it's nice in the Blu-ray where they they sort of sh- show you a comparison to the rehearsals to the actual scenes, and you can kind of see where they kind of you know where they went with it and stuff it was, yeah. it was really nice well this this is why i like and respect directors like michael mann is, is the fact that you know he clearly 
has explored and thought about everything, every single aspect. And, you, you know, um, there's nothing worse than, than than when you're an actor. And, you know, I've experienced this, on, on, you know, on, on stuff where you've actually, as the actor, thought more about the scene and the character and what's going on in the scene than the actual filmmaker and you think to yourself what the fuck is wrong with this picture you know what I mean you're supposed to you know yeah you know I'm not saying that every director has every single answer for everything but you should at least explored what you're trying to say in each scene you know what I mean so and, and Michael Mann absolutely yeah you look at any extras or behind the scenes with him even um I watched recently um uh a little featurette that was on YouTube um where he was um basically Colin Farrell um and uh um is it Gong Lee the the, the girl from uh, Miami oh, Vice um my, yeah yes. they, they they were having dance salsa dance training for the um for the again it's great being a, a professional actor and having all this gun training dance training <laughs> fucking brilliant but um no they, they they were um being trained for the you know the Cuba scene and um what was great is you you had you know obviously the dance choreographers and everything in there uh you, you know teaching them the moves and and all of this sort of thing but michael mann was there for this whole thing and you see him not only talking about the 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 dancer moves but what that's saying about where they are and the character and all. he actually gets to the point where Colin Farrell goes oh come on man get the fuck out of here or something <laughs> which is quite a typical Colin Farrell I guess I have to say um some great supporting actors in this oh, yeah. and I think the sort of standout is Mark Ruffalo definitely as the detective now so you've got Tom Cruise and Jamie Foxx driving around and doing all these hits but you've also you see the the police sort of following the trail of bodies. Um, Mark Ruffalo's character, uh, Fanning, is the only one who thinks that something's wrong with this picture because they get to a point where they believe that Jamie Foxx is Vincent. And that point is when um, Jamie Foxx has gotten the list off him and thrown it away. And Vincent needs the list to continue his job. So they go to this bar where... Um, is it Javier Bardem? Yes, that's yes. right. Yeah, yeah. He plays a character called Felix, I think, or something. Yeah, that's it, yeah. yes. And uh, so, but because Vincent don't meet people, he animosity is his, you know, is his shield. He is, uh, you know, he's a man who stays very much in the shadows. I mean, there's a bit of dialogue in uh, that Fanning says about, you know, do you ever buy that taxi cab driver who went crazy and started killing all those people? So you had this sort of foreshadowing of what was going to happen to Max if he, you know, carried on, continued on with Vincent, you know, unaware or not trying to get away. He would have ended up with, you know, being blamed for these murders and a bullet in his head. But um, they think he's Vincent and um, but Mark Ruffalo believes, believes he's not, believes that there's somebody else involved. And you have he's like a glimmer of hope for max in the film especially in the um the club scene and you you just he he gets to max doesn't he yeah. he's getting him out you think oh he's gonna he's gonna he's gonna be saved now it's gonna and and vincent just takes fanning out like that yeah no absolutely and that's it and he's gone no and it's just and then it's just max and vincent 
and there is nobody coming to Max's uh, rescue. And it's so good. And the way the film handles that as well is brilliant um, because Max realizes that he has to do something. Otherwise, he's not going to he's not going to see the morning. No, absolutely. I love. I mean, back to Mark Ruffalo. I love Mark Ruffalo anyway. I think mm. he's great, and in this, he's particularly strong. I mean, this was, you know, he, he's he's almost chameleon like in so much as, you, you, you know, um, because Michael Mann spends a lot of time on on how the look of the character should be. I mean, back to what you were saying about the grey suits and things of mm. that nature. You know, he, he he'd come up with this specific look for. Um, the fanning character and uh yeah you know it's it, it, it's it's you know you don't instantly look at it i mean when you hear his voice you oh it's ruffalo but you know you don't instantly look at it and say oh look it's mark ruffalo because he's 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 got a different vibe going on and then um yeah great performance absolutely yeah yeah well i mean why you don't sort of recognize him at first is because he's undercover cop and he looks uh puerto rico yeah puerto rican and he's he's sort of speaking dialogue in spanish Exactly. So, so you don't really so it throws you a bit, but then once he pulls out his mobile phone and says, you know, um, is this officer Fanning, mm-hmm. and you go, oh right, yeah, Mark Ruffalo. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Why I picked this for Movie Heaven was I I remember the reaction I had coming out of this film, and I remember coming out of this film with a high. I, I just I loved it and I thought it was great and. Uh, the storytelling was just so compelling and I had such a good time watching it. And at the end of it, it was, you know, I just, it's that feeling when you, you, you know, you've just come out and, and you've, you've seen a really good film. You've seen a great film yeah. and you're, you're going, I am so sad. I, I'm sorry. I'm so glad I watched that in the cinema. Oh, definitely. Yeah, remember, yeah. 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 And I remember going home afterwards and I was in such a high and it's, it's brilliant. And I, you know, it, I mean, I don't get the same high each time when I watch it now because you can only get that once. But uh, I still like coming back to this film once in a while and watching it, and I still enjoy it, and I think uh, it's a great film. And as I said, my starting piece, you know, was sort of started, held the use of digital cinematography in in a sense that you can make a whole film using this technology. And... You know, I, I know there's a few scenes in there that they use film to shoot on. But, mm. you know, to think now that we 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 see films all the time being shot with digital cameras. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, you know, one of, one of the interesting things, um, like you said, I think this is a very strong choice and contender uh, for movie heaven. Um, but, you know, My, Michael Mann is very much a, you know, a, a classic, you, you know, old old school style filmmaker very much and you know as we said likes to shoot you know anamorphic and 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 things of that nature but at the same time you know he has been one of those that has really embraced um you know the digital technology and and and, you know got very good results from it i mean i think it was the was it the viper camera that he used it was the viper yeah. yeah 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 and um you know, at that stage, I mean, it kind of sounds ridiculous now, but, you know, uh, 11 years ago, you know, this was still, you know, quite experimental. It was, as as we said, the, there wasn't many sh- films at this point being shot with uh, digital cameras. And if they were, they were all sort of these sort of pro-consumer ones. So they always had a very video look to them. 
and they didn't have like a such a cinematic look which um this film does i, I have to say though i do notice the reshoots in this film and you can always tell because um tom cruise's hair and beard and eyebrows suddenly get a lot darker uh-huh. yeah okay <laughs> and it, it it's kind of funny because you think can uh, you know okay i know it's reshoots but could they have not they should have they should have been able to use the same makeup artist should have been able to do the same you know effects it's like i can always tell what shots are the reshoots in phantom menace you just have to look at um ewan mcgregor and if he looks like he's been stung by a bee that's the reshoot <laughs> yes but that because they couldn't cut his hair could they he'd grown it long for um a theater show he was in and so they had to make this elaborate wig to, to make his hair short but to stick all that hair in there it made it look like he'd just been stung by a bee yeah yeah <laughs> so it's it's a it's a little distracting those shots and they, they're always shots within the cab as well so they sort of a little bit jarring and it's just like you know what were they thinking was it the fact that he was doing something else and he couldn't dye his hair quite possibly i mean it's not as bad that the worst movie for Tom Cruise in terms of hair continuity, and it really makes me laugh, is um, Cocktail, because they did reshoot to that while he was making, um, I think, Rain Man or something at the same time. And, uh, you know, th- th- there's a scene where he goes into a- an elevator with his his hair actually, you know, cropped in at the back, like clippered in, right? When he gets yeah. into the elevator, it's shoulder length. And then when he comes out, it's cropped in again. And it's like, <laughs> you know, but again, I know that was because of a, a reshoot and him not being able to change, you know, his hair yeah. for, hey, at least at least in Phantom Menace, uh, George Lucas didn't fix the hairstyle with uh, CGI, <laughs> at least. <laughs> wow. Yeah. <laughs> That's, uh, yeah. yeah. But um, no, in- interesting. Um, but yeah, I, I love it. I- I've I've watched Collateral several times and watched all the-, the 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 extras on Collateral are very good, and the commentary track on that one is great as well. So um, yeah, good good choice. Um, no no disagreement so far. I'm 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 with you one hundred percent on this. So yeah, excellent. Right. Well, let's move on to movie hell. So, Keith, what is your pick for movie hell? All right. Well, you know, in in, in standard Keith fashion, um, I, <laughs> you know, it, Keith, it's kind of movie heaven, movie. Well, it's okay, but it's I picked it for a reason, <laughs> which is a long title. But um, no, with this one, I thought this would be really interesting to talk about because it also allows me to talk about another um, Michael Mann film on this podcast uh, that, 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 that was a contender for heaven as well. So, but uh, w- what I've chosen to talk about, um, uh, and I put it in the hell category, is uh, a film called L.A. Takedown, uh, which was made in 1989. Um, reason this is quite interesting is this: this is actually a TV television movie. It was uh, originally made as a possible pilot for a series that that, that that didn't end up happening um obviously michael mann had come off two sort of popular series at this time he'd done obviously miami vice and he'd also done police story um is it police story no, crime story crime, crime story. story i'm sorry crime story police story is the jackie chan film that's right it is yes he didn't do that definitely not his style um but no. uh yeah so um 
but the thing is, and, and you know, a lot of people already know this is, is part of uh, cinema folklore is, um, you know, there, there have been directors over the years that have, that have actually, you know, we talk about remakes all the time, but there have been directors that have actually remade their own work over the years. I mean, Hitchcock, who, who did most things, uh, you know, he, he did that with, um, uh, uh, which one was it? It was the man, the man you knew too much, wasn't it? He, That's right. Um, yes. Obviously, people like uh, Michael Haneke have done it. Uh, other directors of, if they foreign directors, they they they've often made the English language remake, etc., of their films as well. But um, this this film was obviously remade into one of Michael Mann's best films. Again, a big contender for for heaven, which is which is the film Heat. Um, you know, with Al Pacino and Robert De Niro, which is an absolute classic. So I just want to interrupt, but um, this is the first time I watched it. Oh, okay. Yeah. And uh, I've known of it of years, but I also knew how bad it was. Uh, And watching it, it does feel like a a dry run for Heat. It is, yeah. It's like a blueprint. It's a prototype uh, for for Heat. Um, It's very much like it was quite interesting that... uh, that comment you were making earlier about um, how he likes to rehearse and uh, mm. you, you know, obviously it's a very expensive way of doing it, but you know, he almost said, uh, I've seen an interview about this and he's almost said that he almost wishes he could do this with every film <laughs> because <laughs> you, you, you know, it, it kind of, it kind of gets the groove out for it. But I mean, essentially what had happened was he had written this script back in the seventies. Um, he obviously made, Big Thief and had success with that with James Kahn and um, he he had this script but it was a long script it was like a three hour you know it was like 180 page script um, for, for Heat and originally he'd offered it to Walter Hill to direct and um, Walter Hill didn't want to do it passed on it for whatever reason and it sat around and you know um, Michael Mann carried on with his career in research and other projects and knocking out all these these other films. And, um, you know, he got the opportunity to, as I said, do this as a TV movie, as a proposed pilot. But obviously what that meant was he had to cut lots of subplots and whatever out. So he had to sort of condense the film down to something that could sort of fill a 90 minute TV slot. Okay. Um, so he went ahead and, and, and did this. I mean, just to give it some context, because often, uh, again, at film school, um, we talked a lot about actors and performance. And quite often they would play that famous um, sat across each other at a table scene between De Niro and, and Pacino, um, you know, which is often used. Loads of actors use it for their show reels, et cetera. And they, they play the, the same version of the scene from from the TV <laughs> um, version and you know people are always like oh this isn't so good and whatever but ju- just to give it a bit of context Heat had six months of pre-production and was a 107 day shoot okay LA Takedown had 10 days of pre-production and they shot the whole thing in 19 days so uh, okay I know it's I know it's it's half the length uh, story-wise as well but you, you, you know, obviously that puts it into, into a bit of context. Um, you know, this was done. And, and the other thing I wanted to say about this, and, and it's funny, it's something that's changed nowadays, but back in the sort of late 80s, this was very much the case. And Michael Mann, I think, has always looked at it that way. Um, this was of a time when television and film, uh, although being sort of um, 
you know, although television is kind of a younger sibling to film, um, in terms of uh, actors and production and things of this nature, they were the, the lines were less uh, were more blurred than they are nowadays. Or sorry, the lines nowadays are, are, are more blurred, should I say? So there was more of a delineation between film and television. And um, you, you know, Michael Mann often talks about the fact he likes to use, uh, you know, the two thirty-five aspect ratio, and of course. Back then, you couldn't do that on television. You know, it was all four to three and the screens, you know, before high def and widescreen and large screens were, were so much different. So it was very much, um, you, you know, a different medium, uh, certainly different budgets and different schedules. Um, but also, you know, you look at the actors and nowadays we have film stars that are in TV shows and vice versa. But, um, you, you know, back then, um, you, you know, we were talking sort of TV actors like uh, in this, you've got Alex MacArthur playing the, the character that uh, De Niro would go on to play. Now, Alex MacArthur had appeared in the Papa Don't Preach uh, Madonna video as a boyfriend, and he'd, he'd just come off the back of a successful TV movies called Desperado, which were Western movies and stuff. But, um, uh, you, you know, th this production was was on a much different scale, even though essentially the story and the characters, even though some of the names have changed, is the same uh, blueprint for what later would become Heat, which many regard as an amazing film. I didn't know that he had written the scripts uh, already and that it had been longer because what it felt like watching it was that he, he'd done L.A. Takedown and he went, actually, I think... I need more time with these characters. I need to sort of, you know, give them a bit more space, give them a bit more breathing room because it's just very, you know, you, the Chris character that's played um, by um, Val Kilmer in Heat, you know, plays a bigger part. Much bigger. In yeah. Much bigger yeah. part than he does in this. In this, he's, you know, I think I was so uh, Wayne Grove's character is sort of, he kind of is pivotal, but uh, he doesn't seem to be such the um, the the glaring threat that he is in in mm -hmm. in the film. Yeah, and also you don't have the character of um, the broker who whose stocks they stole and who has a, a you know a keen interest at getting back at um, at Robert De Niro's gang and stuff. Um. I mean, other things as well, compare, comparing this film to Heat was the fact that um, there's a scene, uh, th there's the scene where Hannah is talking to his girlfriend and he, in the in Heat, he's just come back from seeing uh, that, the, finding the dead girl, you know, and sort of hugging the, the mother. Mm -hmm. And he sort of does that speech about how you know he's got to stay sharp, and and she's saying about how they're passing each other. Yet in LA Takedown, all that dialogue is given to the girlfriend, and it was just very, it was very. You could just sort of, you you know, you could say, oh well, I, he's not. That doesn't quite work. So I'll change that and I'll do this. And that's that's what it felt like watching LA Takedown. Mm -hmm. That you know it was a dry run. I mean, also how they get into the. The famous coffee scene 
in heat is way cooler <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's so stupid in la yeah. takedown i mean they literally bump each, into each other at a, in a car park and they do the whole thing where they they go for their guns but there's so many people around which is hilarious from a point of view that when the robbery takes place they're still shooting at each other with the public around so it that just makes no sense at all yeah yeah no absolutely i mean there are scenes that take place at you know at night in in heat which are you know, daytime scenes, I guess, because of their shooting schedule or whatever in a LA takedown. Um, but yeah, I mean, it is interesting. I know this is is fact. This is not just something read. I, I actually saw uh, an interview with Michael Mann about this. And he, he does say how, you know, it was always, Heat was always like a 180 page script that he had to, you know, pare down to, to, to come up with LA takedown. And obviously, as you've rightly said, you know, they, they took out subplots with the gambling thing, you, you know, with the Val Kilmer character, um, you, you know, and a lot, lot, a lot of other stuff had to go, um, you, you know, by the wayside, even though essentially the sort of nuts and bolts of the plot is exactly the same. It's just that a lot of the character stuff and the subplots and the characterization is sadly missing from this. And, and, and you know, I, and as a result, the film suffers for it i think you know um it does feel like a sort yeah. of cheap cheap dry run <laughs> of it well i have to say the uh the actor who plays vincent hannah scott plank i think his name is actually very apt because he's very wooden in yeah film. he sadly died a few years back actually he died quite young so um yeah but no um uh yeah yeah no i agree he is he's he's not um you can you can see where the Vincent Hanna, you know, um uh El Pacino character had come from, but you're right. Um Scott, you know, didn't quite quite have the sort of charisma and whatever. <laughs> uh, you know, they're a lot younger. I mean, what's interesting is is that those two key characters in this are like in their late twenties, early thirties, whereas obviously in Heat, um, you, you know, De Niro and Pacino were what what in their 50s i guess or 40s. late 40s or whatever no, 40s, 40s yeah. yeah so um it, you know there's, there's a little bit of uh difference but um no I, I just think it's interesting um you, you know how how you know th this sort of genesis um became the basis for that because i remember i mean for, for me heat um when that came out in uh what was that 95 was heat yeah it was like eight years after this yeah. film wasn't it um uh you know i remember that was that was just before i was starting film school and i was actually working in a in miami on a cruise ship you know for for sort of legal reason, visa reasons and um oh, okay. my, my, still my good friend then my cabin mate tony um who by the way listens to this podcast so i've got to give tony a, a thank you for that he's he's gone back and sort of revisited all the old episodes so Hopefully he's listening and he's hearing that I'm giving him a shout out. But um, no, my, my friend Tony and so, hello Tony. Yeah, hello Tony. <laughs> so no, he he and I um we 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 went to see this because obviously we knew it was Pacino and De Niro and it was a Michael Mann film, but we had no idea it was like a three hour movie. And the trouble was when we were in port, we were literally only in for like well ba barely three hours, you know. Um, 
uh, three and a half hours at the most. And I remember that we had to, as soon as the end credits, when we were riveted throughout the film, because it was so great, as soon as the end credits came up, we, we sort of looked, realised what the time was. We had to jump in a taxi and leg it, and they were literally pulling the gangplank from the dock in onto the cruise ship as we ran up. Unfortunately, you know, the, the, the security guys knew us and they let us sort of jump on. But uh, yeah, it was yeah. madness. I had no idea I was going to see a three hour film, but it, <laughs> it didn't feel like it. You know, it, it was, um, yeah. it was, it was, uh, you, you know, interesting and compelling and well acted. And, uh, you, you know, as I said, was definitely up there sort of for a, a movie heaven contender, but, um, but by comparison, LA takedown, you know, for all its, its production restrictions, um, you know, is, 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 is definitely movie hell by comparison, I think. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> I mean, just as we're taking trips down memory lane, um, I saw Heat uh, around at my friend's Kevin at his place, and uh, he used to watch that film so much. I mean, he's constantly watching it. I remember every time we come around, he'd, he'd have it on. So um, I'd sit and watch it with him and uh sort of got to know the film that way but uh yeah no it's it, it heat's a great film la takedown uh i think is a great you know dry run and uh but in comparison it's really not very good no but interesting and, and you know fortunate that he was able to do this and still get to make um heat as well you know <laughs> well i mean he just come off doing last mohicans which was a big hit for yes. him so you know so he he had the the power to sort of do that and get the actors that he wanted yeah and and thank god he did because you know otherwise we wouldn't have heat so yes so right moving on to my pick for uh movie hell so this is a film i saw when i was a child i saw this back in the 80s and at the time uh i was it scared me, but also baffled me. <laughs> so as an adult, it sort of baffles me. It's one of these films where, you know, each time I watch it, I I, I just keep hoping that there's a good film there and it, it never delivers. And it, it has the promise. It, within this film, there is a promise of, of, of a really good horror film and the film is the keep based on a novel right i believe that's right yes it's based on the f paul wilson novel about uh, a troop of nazi soldiers who go to a keep in uh romania and um they are sort of picked off by a supernatural force uh so it's um well, it has a troubled production history. Um, there are reports of the, a three-hour cut. Yes. And watching this film, you can tell there are lots of things missing. So I'll, I'll, I'll just sort of run off the cast list because this is a hell of a cast, cast list. You've got Scott Glenn. You've got... Ju um, Jürgen Proganoff, yes. Thank you, <laughs> Jürgen Prognow. You've got Gabriel Byrne. And you've got Ian McKellen in a horror film. Indeed, as well as Alberta Watson, who I was really sad to discover actually died earlier this year. So oh. because, you know, she was Miss, you know, in, in, in uh, Nikita in 24 and all those kind of shows. She always had those, you know, strong female character um, authority 
figure roles. And uh, yeah, I, I was I was shocked to see when I was looking at the credits for this that she died back in March, and she was only like uh, I think fifty eight or something. So very sad. Oh, very sad. Hmm. The the story is about uh, you know uh, a troop of Nazis who they believe that they've won the war that you know that they're you know, the rulers of uh, of of everything they see and they've been given guard duty of this keep which is in the uh, Romanian mountains and um, they are warned uh, by the um, the caretaker of the keep uh, not to disturb the uh, nickel crosses that adorn the whole of place and of course uh, to the soldiers you know being greedy little bastards <laughs> they 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 think one of the crosses is silver because it starts to glow and they release this uh creature um i believe his name is uh, Moslar. that's right yes and uh he's played by michael carter now if you don't know who My- michael carter is you may know the character he played in return of the jedi and he played Bib Fortuna. Oh, right. I didn't even realize that. That's cool. Interesting. Okay. Yep. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it, it's a it's a very interesting creature design until we get to the very end. Yeah. I mean, I like the bit where you could see the bones and sinew and the, the glowing face. That that was a really good look. Molsar is kind of using... Um, he is sort of rebuilding himself from this evil that the Nazis have brought into the village because um, Ergen Prognow. Jürgen Proganov, yeah. <laughs> Pro- I know it's Pro- Proganov, Proganov, yeah, yeah. He'd come <laughs> off the, this okay. was his first, this was his first Hollywood film, right? He'd come off of Das Boots yes. and, yeah. Das Boots, yeah. Yeah. Well, anyway, he, he calls for um, reinforcements and gets Gabriel Burns' SS commander who takes it to start, you know, executing the villagers because he believes there to be uh rebels there and uh this is just feeds molsa and makes him more human i think if if his uh transformation was more complete that he would actually look like a human and not the sort of black figure you see at the end because um scott glenn's character he is the I believe the owner of the keep. I mean, it's never really. I mean, this is the thing about this film: is nothing's really concrete. There's. It's a bit disjointed. Yes. Yeah. It is, and this is where I say there's 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 things missing, but it, it turns out that Scott Glenn, you know, his character is he's connected to the keep, and uh, if Molsar is evil, then he's good. And he's there to sort of stop Molsar from escaping the keep. Now, uh, Ian McKellen plays this doctor who's also a Jew and also has a um, he has a disease where he's older than his actual age. Um, a bit like um, JJ Sebastian in Blade Runner. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that he has a disease where he is older than he actually his actual age is. And um, the 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 priest in the village says that he is the only one who you know could 
tell them what's happening, can read this uh, ancient dialect that's been left on one of the walls. And, um, and so, you know, you get a, a really good performance from Ian McKellen in this, in this film. And, uh, but the thing is, so one minute he's, I think they're in like a waiting area or it's supposed to be a concentration camp. I don't know. You can't really tell. That's right. Yeah. I think, I think it is supposed to be a concentration camp, isn't it? Yeah. 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 But they're, they're talking about moving on and where they're going. There's, they talk about fields and, you know, yet, uh, Gabriel Byrne takes great delight telling them that the, they actually go into chimneys and, uh, they never come out again. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, uh, it, it, events happen and... <laughs> or, or not, or not as the case may be. Not happens, maybe. Yeah. And you get like this final shot showdown at the end where all the Nazis have been killed and uh, Molslar is going to be, you know, released. There's a, a talisman that uh, Ian McCallan's character has to take out because Molsar can't physically take it out himself. And if he's released into the world, then, you know, the rule of man would be over. And of course, it, it, it isn't, you know, it, it... Yeah, it's... No, I know I know what you mean. I mean, I think, mm. I think it was a bit of an ill-fated production by the sounds of things, because this was, this was, I guess, Michael Mann's second feature right he'd done thief and this was the next one i think wasn't it was it that's right yeah. yeah obviously obviously there was a bit of a gap in between there but um uh and i've not read the novel but from what i can tell because his original cut was like 210 minutes i'm, I'm guessing he kind of did a fairly you know true adaptation of the of the novel i'm guessing but obviously the film itself 96 minutes um you, you know there, there's so much lost in there that i think this is the reason i watched it i mean i, I remember seeing it um back in the day on on vhs simply because mm. after manhunter and whatever i was kind of wanting to see everything michael mann did and um this was one of them and i remember at the time you know thinking, oh well you know he's done a, a horror film it's a bit different you know and and I saw it and, and you know, I, I kind of didn't mind it at the time, um, but I did rewatch it for this. And I have to say, I found it quite hard going, to be perfectly honest with you. And it's not coherent at all, um, you, you know, which is very odd for Michael Mann. Um, I think Michael Mann may have kind of distanced himself from this as as well um, over the years. I, I don't know the true story behind that. I think this is um, I, I've read a few things online where they say that um he has distanced himself and that the reason why you can't get this on dvd or blu-ray is that he won't let it be released even though it's on netflix yeah well, that's where i saw but there's it. also yeah yeah and there's also talk about that there's problems with the rights to the music because it's it has this it has this very interesting score by tangerine dream and um i I think one of the problems with the film is that the sound mix in it is terrible. The music drowns everything out, even though there is dialogue going on. I mean, the bit with the two soldiers who let uh, Molsar out, um, you can hear that, you can see that they're talking, but you can't hear what they're saying. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, that, that bit, which is obviously a key scene, is, is, is I mean, it's, it's obvious what's happening, but it's, it's quite confusing in terms of, like you said, you've got a lot of sound design 
um, in terms of Tangerine Dream score and whatever in there. But yeah, it is. I mean, I think I think this is one of the 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 the, the problems this film has is from from what I can tell and the, and the little that I can find out about it. Um, it it was one of those films that wasn't really finished off um, as such. Like uh, obviously you got quite a good cast, even though it's fairly early in some of their careers, but you've got a great cast and a, and a great story idea. But mm. um, I read things that apparently the, the, the guy who was doing the special effects died before the film was finished. And Michael Mann ended up having, that's not really his area, but ended up having to do a lot of the post-production visual effects stuff himself. Um, obviously, you know, you've got this, issues with the the music rights you've got obviously lots of deleted footage and stuff from this and and i guess the the creature didn't turn out the way that it was originally envisioned or whatever so um yeah as a result you've got a film that doesn't really gel and and you know which is a very odd thing to say about a michael mann film <laughs> but you know in this case yeah it doesn't I, I you know i found it a bit hard to sit through actually even though it was only 96 minutes um it's kind of like mm, it was losing me a little bit this time round. i found yeah uh i mean it's a film i keep coming back to I, i've seen this quite a few times now and i keep coming back to it because i keep hoping that it's gonna be good you want to like it no i, I get it yeah <laughs> yeah i mean it's just as i say it's one of these films that i saw from my childhood and you know, it, it freaked me out a bit. I mean, the bit with the two soldiers as a kid absolutely freaked the hell out of me. And, you know, the lights coming out of the walls. And oh, stuff, yeah. That was, that was freaky. That was well done. I have to say, the, the production design in this film is amazing. You don't, you've never seen anything quite like it before. The, the keep itself is, is quite, a, quite a thing. I mean, they filmed this in a quarry in Wells. Wow. Is it in Wells? I didn't realize that. Okay. It's in Wells. Yeah. Okay. Uh, it's one of the problems they were having was the fact that it kept raining all the time, so they had to stop shooting and wait for the rain to finish and stuff. So hence why there's some scenes where it starts off dry and then it's wet, <laughs> and <laughs> you know, and they just so, so many delays. Yeah, it, it it just it just has this very sort of disjointed feel about it. Um, you, you know, uh, what what's there is not bad, but. Yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't feel complete. I think that is the thing. It, it doesn't feel like a. It doesn't feel like it's all there, <laughs> quite literally. Uh, and uh, you know, it, it, it's weird. I mean, I hear there's um there's a Kickstarter project or something for um, uh, or some sort of crowdfunded project for a documentary about this. Is that right? Do you know about yes, that? Yes, that's correct. Uh, you sort of. Uh... Oh, sorry. I was gonna it was mention this, but uh, as as you brought it up, yes, there is a documentary called uh, "World War Two Fairy Tale: The Making of Michael Mann's The Keep." Oh wow! Uh, they're doing an Indiegogo campaign, and it starts uh, this this November, according to the uh, website. Oh right, okay, that could be an interesting watch then. I yeah, I think uh, I I would be really interested in seeing that because um, it's as I say, it's it's one of these films where it could have been so much better than it was. And, you know, I think a, a case of studio interference. Um, though I do, there, there is one trivia fact that always makes me smile. And the um, the sort of the small armoured vehicle that you see uh, Gabriel Byrne in when he enters the village 
was actually used uh, later on in a lower low. <laughs> okay, yeah, <laughs> love it. <laughs> oh, nice. So, yeah, <laughs> oh, that's good. That's good. I mean, so I, from I, one I bad yeah. um, World War Two film to a bad World War Two comedy. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I don't know whether this ever will get a a release or a director's cut or anything. Probably not. If 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 Michael Mann doesn't want to sort of be tied to it anymore well I'll, I'll say this um it it might be a case of that um it it might be released um one day like uh with clockwork orange in this country when after kubrick died um the film came out because the band the self-imposed band was over but um with this we don't know I mean, I don't think. I mean, is it even finished? Much... Is the question. You know what I mean? That that two hundred and ten minute edit. You know, does that actually? Is it finished off? I, we we don't know. I guess, do we? Well, maybe because back in the eighties, um, they 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 had this practice where uh, films on TV would be longer. That's right. Than they were in the cinema. I mean, there's um, over in the states when they showed Superman the movie, there was a lot more. F- footage in there than there is in the in the final film. yeah so, star trek the motion picture as well there's a lot of extra yeah believe it or not <laughs> i mean i've i've seen i've seen the extended ending where you see um let me just look at uh, alberta watson go back into the keep and find scott glenn's character alive because at the end of this version it's a very sad ending right because you know they they've had like a, a brief love affair and now she's lost him. I have to say, I mean, you know, good on on old Scott Glenn. I mean, he meets a girl two minutes later. They're shacked up. Absolutely, yes, yeah. In the uh, <laughs> yes, um, yeah, that bit was easier to sit through. But yeah, um, anyway, so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but this whole, you know, they're calling it a World War Two fairy tale. I mean, is that like a quote that had come from Michael Mann himself? Do you know? I mean, is that that how he was describing this film? I don't know. Possibly. I mean, it, it certainly plays like a fairy tale in some sense. I mean, it's just, you know, it, it would be. I would love to see a restored version of this. I'd like to see, you know, the something close to the three hour mark. Um, as I say, there there is a better story in there. It's just, um, it's just, it's. It, I mean, it's a bit like L.A. Takedown and Heat. So you know, we got the ninety minute version of the Keep, like uh, L.A. Takedown, but there's a longer version out there. Uh, you know, maybe this is a film worth remaking. Yeah, well, you know? it's, it's an interesting. Uh topic and because of you know when it's set it's kind of yeah it's the sort of film you could make any time so yeah it's it's yeah. uh yeah well why not mm, interesting uh, yeah, i i mean I, I agree i can see why you picked it for movie hell um uh you, you know it, it's very unusual in in his body of work that um you know something doesn't doesn't feel finished or, or quite quite there and uh this is definitely the the, the film of his that the that, that, that is is definitely not quite complete and it and it feels that way so um yeah one one can only hope that we might see something uh, in the future but uh, hmm, 
Well, I'm certainly looking forward to learning more about it through this uh, documentary when it comes out. So, uh, you know, at least at least we have that. Well, hopefully that will get made. I think so. I mean, I've been following it on Facebook and they've been doing a lot of interviews. So, you know, I think it's just uh, getting access to footage is always the is the main thing. And has man been involved in that, do you know, or is he like completely nothing to do with it? Uh, no idea. I haven't been following it that much. Right. And um, if, you know, if if it's correct what you say that he doesn't like this film, then I don't think he's going to talk about it. I think he's going to do like a Fincher and Alien free. Yeah, I, I don't know that for a fact. There's only stuff I've read online. And as we said earlier, you know, you never know whether <laughs> whether it's all true or, or some of it's speculation. So, um, but yeah, yeah. I mean, interesting to see some of these actors that, you know, we now see in everything um, younger, yeah. you know, like like Syrian McKellen, for example, you know, um, and uh, uh, y- y- you know, interesting to see some of these early ro- earlier roles for you know Jurgen Proganov and um, Gabriel Byrne and 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 those guys and Scott Glenn, absolutely. So y- you know, um, but yeah, uh, interesting, an interesting film, a different, a really unusual one when you look at Michael Mann's canon of work. This is this is kind of an oddball, isn't it? In there, really. Yeah. So. Well, I think that's a, a good place to sort of uh, end the film, uh, end the podcast on. So um, we're going to keep the Michael Mann um, theme running into the next episode, which is our extra. Uh, we're going to talk to uh, Chris Rogers, who was also going to be on the Michael Mann podcast with uh, Rob and Clive. And uh, we're going to talk about uh, a film which um, it's a, a Marmite film. Uh, it's one of his, Michael Mann's films that a lot of people like and a lot of people hate. And um, and Chris knows a lot about this film, so um, we're going to have him on board next week on the podcast and we're going to talk about Miami Vice. Yeah, and for, for once I've actually got my, um, my, my wish come true because often in these, you know, particularly with directors like this, where we only just sort of scratch the surface and there's other things we want to talk about. And I say, oh, that's a whole nother podcast. Well, guess what? For this one, we have got a whole nother podcast. So that's great. <laughs> Look forward to it. <laughs> right. Well, we'll finish this off in our sort of usual manner. Um, so, Keith, where can we find your work? OK, if you go to YouTube and put in British Isles, uh, spell E-Y-L-E-S, um, they have my films there. Uh, I was looking the other day and uh, nobody's ever commented on any of them, good or bad. So, uh, you know, please uh, watch it, share it, comment on it. You, you know, what whatever. Feedback is always good. So um, please do. Indeed. But unlike uh, Keith uh, on our uh, YouTube channel we actually do have a lot of feedback there's been a lot of uh interesting conversations about our previous podcasts on youtube so uh check out um, just search for movie heaven movie hell and you'll see a lot of those comments and uh please feel free to uh, sort of join in the conversation um also um you can find my work at independentrunnings.com and you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Just search for Movie Heaven, Movie Hell. Well, that just leaves me to say um, thank you for listening. And uh, join us next week where we uh, delve deeply into Miami Vice. I cannot wait. See you then.
I'm just looking at IMDb and the frequently asked questions, and it says here that uh, the reason why uh, it wasn't released on DVD, uh, the alleged story so far was that Paramount was going to release it on DVD back in 2004, but there were two reasons that they haven't that have stopped them from doing so. First, the studio wasn't able to obtain the rights to the soundtrack by Tangerine Dream. Second is that Michael Mann, who has publicly disowned the film, forced the studio not to release it. Oh, well, there you go. There we Now we know. So time is luck, as Michael Mann would say. <laughs>